Welcome to the Unbiased Estimator, the podcast in which we break down why we know what we know about the complicated world of healthcare. This is Daniel Wang. I'm a medical student at the Duke University School of Medicine with a degree in economics from Rice University. I want to learn more about how the toolbox of economics research methods can be applied to improve the way that we deliver health in the U.S. Today we're talking about ambulance taxis. More specifically, how some firms commit Medicare fraud by providing and billing for ambulance rides when they're not medically needed, creating a very expensive taxi service. Is there a way we can prevent firms from committing Medicare fraud? Are lawsuits better or is prior authorization better? And how do we even answer these kinds of questions? Yeah, so my name is Riley League. I'm a fourth year PhD student here at Duke in economics, and I study health economics and industrial organization. Riley works with Professor Roberts, the department chair of the economics department at Duke, and has worked on several projects related to the dialysis industry. I'm excited to learn from him about the convoluted world of the dialysis industry and how he and his co-authors are untangling its effect on patients and healthcare costs. I mean, as you've seen, there are other papers that this similar group has, has done on, on dialysis, and they've, you know, had uncovered sort of unscrupulous practices um, in the past. And even beyond that, you know, there's this great John Oliver like segment where he talks about how the dialysis industry, there's a lot of, you know, shady things going on. Yes, you heard him right. He just said he manages to veto a healthcare company like he would a Taco Bell, the exact opposite of a healthcare company. And so, uh, you know, we we're kind of on the alert for other sorts of interesting things that might be going on in this industry. Um, and so Jetson, one of my co-authors, we met at a conference and he has a lot more experience on sort of the legal system and researching medical fraud. Um, and he's, you know, was aware of various lawsuits that we, that we study in this, um, in this paper. And so we really were then off to the races of thinking about, um, you know, knowing that there are these lawsuits out there, what are they worth studying? What sort of bigger economic questions um, could we answer by looking at them? And uh, so that's kind of how the paper got moving in the direction that it did. There are a lot of different ways that papers can come about. I think um, this sort of paper where there's like a clear policy that you're studying, so prior authorization or the, you know, all this litigation, it is more common that you sort of become aware of some policy and think, Oh, that's interesting. I wonder what happened and what we can learn from it. But of course, there are other papers where you just kind of have an idea about like the way that agents might act or respond, kind of bigger economic phenomena. You have some big question. Yeah. So the nice thing about the way this paper came together is that the all the data on the dialysis patients, so their health outcomes, uh, you know, where they're getting dialysis, all of those sorts of things, we had we already had a lot of experience using that data for other projects. Uh, now, the getting the lawsuit data was much more difficult, right? So to we knew that to study the lawsuits, we would have to know, you know, all sorts of stuff about them, where they took place, when they took place, um, and kind of the allegations that they levied against against these uh, bad actors. And so for that, we had to do a lot of searching. Um, so in the it's called the PACER system, so like the national or so uh, the public court records data. 
Um, and as well as just like Google searching and, you know, news uh, sources and things like that uh, to collect all this data that we have on the um, on the cases. And so that's really neat because we're the only people who have that. Like the Department of Justice doesn't even know how many of these cases there have been. Um, and that's kind of part of the, you know, that's part the reason we had to collect all this data. But that's also one of the points that we make in the paper is that like, the Department of Justice doesn't have a big central sort of way of sharing, well, in this district, we're working on this and this district, we're working on that. So you can sort of see these disjointed uh, litigation strategies across different Department of Justice districts, especially for me, someone who hadn't studied the legal system as much. It was a bit of a surprise um, to, to realize how how difficult it is and how, uh, you know, decentralized the way that the Department of Justice works is. These cases of fraud can often be difficult to study and eliminate because of the fragmented nature of some of these enforcement systems. But because of the way the lawsuits were almost randomly executed in different districts, Riley and his co-authors are able to study their effects on Medicare fraud. With the many actors who participate in the delivery of healthcare, as well as the complex nature of healthcare, it can often be very difficult to identify when fraud is being committed. However, it's very important that we catch it. In 2019, improper payments made by Medicare totaled $28.9 billion, that's billion with a B, the equivalent of 7.3% of all spending by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. Yeah, so a lot of this came from those court records that we collected, right? Because in the trials, of course, the prosecutors have to put forth the allegations of what they allege the, the defendants are doing. And it generally boiled down to giving rides, these ambulance rides to patients that didn't need them, didn't meet the criteria that Medicare had set forth, and billing Medicare uh, for it anyway. Uh, And so the way that the Medicare law or the regulations work is uh, that the care can only be administered to people for whom it's medically necessary. And for ambulances, that means that an ambulance is the only safe way for them to travel, right? So it might be nice to get picked up by an ambulance rather than having to take the bus or get my friend to drive me. Um, but Medicare is a, you know, it's a medical service. And so for better or for worse, the rule is that it will only pay if that's the only safe way for you to travel. So you're meant to be bedridden, uh, you know, maybe needing oxygen or some other service, like medical service as you travel. And so the way that Medicare pays for this is in line with what it expects the cost to be, right? So if you're having to transport a medically, a patient for whom it's medically necessary, someone who's bedridden, someone who requires constant medical attention, that's very costly to the ambulance provider. And so Medicare pays accordingly quite a bit. So now it's around, uh, you know, $250, $300 each way. And so, you know, that that's a lot of money for if you're just not going to do all of that, give that high level care, right? If you have someone who can just walk into the ambulance, sit down, and then use it like a taxi service, and you're also not paying for, you know, as high of, of quality of, you know, EMTs or paramedics in the in the ambulance, then it's, you know, very cheap to administer. And so then you've got this very high margin potential for fraud, where if you're not actually going to render the service in the way that you're supposed to, then you can make a lot of money doing it. Um, And so these, uh, you know, 
bad actors saw this and made a lot of money, right? They got into this industry. Um, they were involved with very aggressive uh, recruiting of patients a lot of the time. Uh, some of these uh, you know, indictments allege ties to organized crime. So, you know, it really, for a lot of these companies, especially the ones that we see get prosecuted, it was like a very uh, systematic and intentional defrauding of the government rather than sort of this gray area. Well, you know, this patient might not be quite medically necessary. Maybe they could do this. Yeah. But um, rather, a lot of it was a, con a concerted effort on the part of people who knew they were doing something illegal. So what kinds of things did these dialysis companies do? So one thing that they would do is they would pay kickbacks to these patients. So, um, you know, rather than just getting the free ambulance ride, which also, as far as Medicare is concerned, the patient should have to pay a copay, right, because it's a Part B service. So they would waive that, which is already illegal. Then they might, you know, give them a little sweetener, right? Like, here's an envelope full of cash to ride in my ambulance and tell, tell all your friends. So... Beyond just sort of the financial stuff, there was also, you know, some of the very aggressive tell your friends, right? Like if you're getting this free ambulance ride, it's not that crazy that you would sort of when you're interacting with people at the dialysis clinic say like um, that you would that there's this service available. Maybe you do or don't know that it's illegal, but um, really encouraging that to happen. The idea of... Um, sort of waiving copays and that being uh, illegal is something that like kind of comes up in other places in dialysis as well. So if you're familiar with the American Kidney Foundation, um, one thing that and this is this is related, but not exactly the same. One other sort of allegation in the dialysis industry of kind of bad behavior is that um, so as you mentioned, most uh, dialysis patients are on Medicare, right? They're automatically eligible. If a patient under 65 is diagnosed with end-stage renal disease, meaning their kidneys no longer work and they require regular dialysis, that patient qualifies for Medicare. This coverage pays for not only services for kidney failure, but all other services and items usually covered by Medicare. But if they're on private insurance, they don't have to immediately transition to Medicare. And private insurers pay much, much more for dialysis, right? Like six times the amount of Medicare, which it's not unusual to pay for private insurance to pay more than Medicare, but six times is, is much more than usual. Um, and so what the American Kidney Foundation will do is uh, pay, help patients pay their premiums to stay on private insurance, which... Uh, you know, makes the dialysis companies get paid a lot more when those patients are on private insurance and who does almost all of the donations to the American Kidney Foundation but the large dialysis providers, right? So it's essentially um, the allegation is that they're using this, uh, this foundation to essentially steer patients from one insurer to another to where they can make more money, which would be illegal. If, if they are doing that. <laughs> and I'm assuming they're doing this also under the guise of like, we're trying to help you get dialysis probably. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. So dialysis. it's, so it's, you know, it's not, yeah, there's a world in which, and it might be this world, I don't know, in which the patients really benefit from being on private dial or excuse me, private insurance, right? Maybe they, 
sort of have access to care that they wouldn't have if they transitioned to traditional Medicare. There are other sort of benefits that their private insurer has that if they were to go on Medicare that um, that they wouldn't be able to access. So so that's not to say that like this is a clear bad thing that they're doing, but I'm just this is just to say there are other allegations of sort of manipulating the payments that patients might have to um, might have to make in order to benefit uh, providers. Here, Riley and his co-authors want to investigate the effectiveness of lawsuits against fraudulent ambulance firms on reducing improper payments by Medicare and compare it to the effectiveness of a policy called prior authorization. Prior authorization is a process by which a medical provider submits a request for a service to be covered by insurance before the service is provided. Prior authorization can be needed if a drug is not covered normally, but it's deemed medically necessary, or if a brand name drug has a generic available, and much more. Reasons for prior authorization requests being denied can be medical, logistic, and more. This can sometimes be a pretty lengthy process and can delay care for patients. In this case, there's a question of whether prior authorization could be effective in preventing fraud and therefore reserving spending on services that have evidence to show that they provide more health benefits. So can you tell me a little bit about how y'all decided to approach studying this problem of prior authorization and litigation? Like what, what methods were you wanting to use or how did you get to those methods? Yeah, so uh, the method that we end up using is called two-way fixed effects. It's essentially uh, a more generalized way of doing uh, difference in differences. And it's probably the most common uh, identification strategy in economics. So whenever you see, uh, you know, one area that is exposed to some policy or some treatment in the, you know, kind of broad policy way, while another one isn't, and you see this change over time, uh, that gives us a variation that we can exploit to sort of uh, say, well, um, what is the effect of this policy or this treatment on the outcome that we're interested in? So in this context, um, to talk about the lawsuits, we saw that they happened in particular places at different times, right? So they might happen in, happen in one Department of, Jur- of Justice jurisdiction very early in time, whereas others, it's much later, and then some never saw any litigation at all. And so if we think that the, the location and timing of these lawsuits is uh, as good as random, then we can essentially isolate the part of the differences in ridership or payments or whatever sort of behavior we're interested in, um, isolate what part of that is coming from the lawsuit, right? And the way we do that is essentially by comparing the change before and after the lawsuit in the place where there was a lawsuit to the change before and after the lawsuit someplace else when there isn't a lawsuit, right? So if you, to take the simple two by two, if there's a lawsuit in North Carolina and no lawsuit in South Carolina and the lawsuit takes place in 2011, we can compare the difference in ridership between pre-2011 and post-2011 in North Carolina, say we see it go down a lot, to the change in ridership between the same two periods in South Carolina, say it doesn't change all that much, right? And if we think that the fact that 
The only di relevant difference between North and South Carolina is that there was a, a lawsuit in North Carolina. Then we can attribute that change in ridership in North Carolina relative to the change in South Carolina to the lawsuit. And so things get a, a little bit more complicated when we're dealing with lots of different possible units that could be treated. And among the treated units, the ones that are treated at different times. But that's essentially the the idea behind the identification strategy, that we're comparing the difference in the treated units over time, before and after they're treated, to a bunch of control units that aren't exposed to treatment. We've talked about fixed effects on the show before, when talking about how some variation in time and space could be accounted for by our dummy variables that are actually pretty smart, as they tell our equation when an observation is in a certain year or district. Two-way fixed effects is similar. In formal terms, by using these variables for years and districts, the authors create a baseline outcome for ambulance rides seen in districts not affected by litigation or prior authorization. They can then see how the treated districts differ in ambulance rides. Growing up, I did a lot of hiking. Whenever I'd go on a hike around mountains, I'd follow a map that told me where elevation changes occurred so I know which areas are uphill and which are downhill. Imagine a topographical map like this of the entire US. Instead of representing elevation, the map is showing the number of ambulance rides each year for each district. This is what state fixed effects are capturing. Each year has a different topographical map. This is what time fixed effects are capturing. By creating these baseline maps, you can see any additional increase or decrease in elevation or ambulance rides specifically caused by interventions like litigation or prior authorization. In summary, fixed effects are ways to capture natural variability in space and time to allow us to more clearly see the additional changes due to interventions. You know, sort of mathematically, this can be reduced to that pre-post, um, you know, sort of uh, exercise that you just described, right? Because time fixed effects, that's just a pre-post variable, but instead of it only being pre or post, it's, you know, every single potential period pre or post. Now, when Riley says pre or post, he's referring to the differences and differences method we've talked about in previous episodes, specifically how we're comparing the differences between groups before, pre, and after, post, in intervention. Uh, and similarly, this treated or non- that the district fix effects are picking that up. So it's rather than just, were you one of the treated districts? It's saying, which particular treated district were you? Which particular untreated district were you? And then exactly, these two summations are just getting at um, the interaction of the two. Let's have some, some variables that are going to be one for the treated units in certain time periods and zero for the untreated units always, just like you described. And so really what these two summations allow us to do is to look at uh, these pre-trends, right? So rather than just comparing the entire first pre-period to the entire post-period, we're able to break it out month, month by month and see if there were any trends differentially beforehand and to see if there are any dynamic effects afterward, to see if the effect grows over time, if the effect shrinks over time, anything like that. And one, one final nice thing about uh, using these summations is that it's easier for us to sort of window the period that we're thinking about. So uh, rather than kind of having early treated units have their post period be really, really long, while for uh, districts that are treated later, having their post period be very, very short, 
Here we're able to window it and say, well, we're going to consider the effect of the treatment over the first two years after prior authorization or after uh, the initiation of litigation, for example. In summary, this two-way fixed effects method is a form of differences and differences that allows us to specify the districts we are comparing and see if the effect of the intervention changes over a specific time period. We have to do this because these lawsuits and prior authorization waves occur at different times. Yeah, that's right. It's also, you know, we wouldn't be able to really isolate two years on either side of any one of these, uh, you know, events that we're interested in, either uh, litigation or prior authorization, because there was lots of variation in when these events happened, right? So if we, again, to go back to the Pennsylvania East uh, example, if we were a window on two years of either side of when litigation started there, well, we wouldn't be able to look at the effects of litigation in very many other districts because those other districts had litigation at different times. Similarly, with prior authorization, there was the first wave that happened at one point. You know, if we window on two, side, two sides of that, uh, you know, that's going to be different than for the second wave of states. And so both because it's important to get sort of as representative or, you know, as big of a sample to um, understand the effects of these various policy actions in different places. Um, we also need that for what's called power. So rather than just having, uh, you know, one treated district compared to some untreated districts, some control districts, we really statistically gain a lot by having many treated districts, right? So rather than sort of having one outcome potentially be attributed to just random noise, when we sample all of these different districts, which sort of requires this using different windows, then we can be more confident that any results that we find are not just because of random shocks to that one district, but are because of the treatment. Let's hear this put together in one example of a comparison that we're making. Yes. So, uh, so let's take Pennsylvania East. So I think the first litigation there was sometime in 2010. So I'll say January 2010 to, to make it easy. So um, what we're going to be comparing is looking at the two years before, you know, leading up to January 2010 and the two years after. And so in, let's say, let's start exactly in January 2010. In that place, we're going to be in one of these sums, the second sum, the value of what's what we call E. So the, t the time relative to the event is going to be zero, right? You're zero months after litigation has started. And so you're going to have that indicator will be turned on. All the other T, sub DT of E's, they'll all be zero. And so that will be on for uh, Pennsylvania East District and off for every other district because no other district is getting treated in January 2010 uh, you know, at exactly that time. And so the comparison we'll then make is as we move forward in time, you know, February, March, April 2010, on for the next two years, those indicators will subsequently turn on in, this, in these T variables. Um, and we'll be comparing the change in, in the outcome for Pennsylvania East to the change in all the other districts. And the reason I say we'll be comparing the change is because we're using these district fixed effects, right? So the average over that entire period for Pennsylvania East or for whatever other district we're comparing it to will be soaked up by that fixed effect. 
And then similarly, it's going to be the differential change over time because in January 2010, the time-fixed effect is going to say, well, maybe there's something going on in January 2010 that's affecting all the districts. So we move to February of 2010. That's now there's a separate fixed effect that's going to pick up all of the things that are happening to all of the districts in February 2010. So this, the, this beta coefficient is going to be identified off of the differential change from January 2010 between the treated district here, Pennsylvania East, and all the other districts. And you can see how just doing the same comparison, we can go through all of the all of the time periods in the window for Pennsylvania East, right? Two years before, a year and a half before, one and a half years after, they're all just being identified off of what is the relative change from the reference point, which here we treat as the month before uh, the litigation happens, uh, in that district relative to all the other districts. And then all we do is essentially aggregate all of the times that that happens across different districts. So that happened in January 2010, we'll say, in Pennsylvania East. Say there's you know, another uh, lawsuit in North Carolina in uh, you know, January of 2006. We would be identifying it the exact same way, but now we'd just be using a different, essentially, set of data, a different region of time uh, where uh, the time-fixed effects and the, the districts are all different because we're earlier in time. They're going to be different control districts and the T variables that we're interested in, the indicators for how close you are to treatment, those are changing only for North Carolina. Now, since this is diff and diff masquerading in another form, we still need to meet our parallel trends assumption and no exogenous events after the intervention assumption. Yeah, so there are a few ways uh, that we can do this. So one very common way is to look for what are called pre-trends. So if it were the case that, that there were no effect from a lawsuit, then we might, and we were worried that the effect that we detect is with, which is a small decrease in ridership after for a criminal lawsuit. If we were worried that that was not real, that that was just a, an artifact of the data, one thing that might cause that is that lawsuits just happen in places where the ridership is declining anyway, right? So if we saw... Uh, ridership going down over time, and then the lawsuit happens and it continues to decline, well, then we might erroneously attribute that, uh, that change from the pre-period where there is more ridership to the post-period where there's not to the lawsuit or to whatever policy change. Um, and so what we'll do is compare the difference in trends before the treatment date in places where there is a lawsuit, in places where there isn't a lawsuit, or places where there is prior authorization and where there isn't prior authorization. And you see this in the paper for prior authorization in figure four, right? So what we're showing is that for the 24 months prior to uh, the implementation of prior authorization, there's no differential change in uh, the trend between the states that do and do not uh, receive the prior authorization regulation. Figure four is a graph that shows total payments for non-emergent ambulance rides on the y-axis and months since prior authorization implementation on the x-axis. Further, since the authors create control and treated districts based on where litigation and prior authorization occurred, 
they needed to argue that the assignment of these interventions to districts was as good as random. Uh, another thing that we, that we can do is sort of use institutional knowledge to think about why these places were selected for treatment. So for prior authorization, we know that the first three states to be treated were selected because they had unusually high utilization of these services. Prior authorization was rolled out in two separate waves. So that can be a little worrying, either from the perspective of that these states might not be representative of the rest of the country, right? We want to know what happens if we were to do this nationwide. And maybe the policy was especially effective in these places because there was a lot of treatment. Um, Another problem might be that these places that uh, were treated were going to respond differently than everywhere else even in the absence of prior authorization, right? They have lots of utilization. Maybe they're just going to fall over time because they're higher than average. Now they're going to be lower than average. And so it's important for us to use institutional knowledge that for the second wave states, the ones that were treated uh, about a year later, we know that they were just selected because they happened to be in between geographically the first wave states, right? So we can be more confident that the reason they received treatment was not something that's going to... be conflated with any of the trends in their ridership, but something that uh, was more, in the language of economists, exogenous, right? Kind of random. Uh, For the lawsuits, it's kind of a similar story. Um, But here, the institutional knowledge that we have is that most of these lawsuits really didn't um, come about from the Department of Justice looking out at their Uh, you know, their district and deciding and noticing, oh, man, we've got a lot of fraud or we've got some good cases out here. Let's try and prosecute them. Really, what seemed to happen is that uh, these cases would just kind of fall on their doorstep and then they would prosecute them. So that's the kind of information that assures us that the reason that various places are treated and the various times at which they are treated is not going to be conflated with the trends that we see in ridership following them, but is really kind of as good as random. If you're listening closely, you might be skeptical about how these control and treatment groups are assembled, since it was not randomized. Placebo tests are especially helpful here because they show that the results aren't just due to random chance. When a truly random intervention is analyzed, no effect is seen. There are also some data things that we can do. So you might expect that these sorts of, uh, you know, spillovers in treatment would be especially strong at the local level. So one thing that we can do is a placebo test where, in, say, there's a lawsuit in Pennsylvania East, we can assign the same treatment date to Pennsylvania Middle or to Maryland or some neighboring district and compare the trends in ridership and payments in those districts, which weren't actually subject to litigation, but treat them as if they were, and compare them to farther away districts that were more confident, you know, wouldn't have had any sort of good information on the lawsuits that were happening in Philadelphia. And uh, we do that in the appendix of the paper, and we see that there aren't any effects uh, of litigation in Philadelphia on ridership in uh you know, in central Pennsylvania, for example. So we've already talked about kind of the assumptions that are made with parallel trends and exogenous events. Um, And we've kind of talked about how you kind of build up this model to control for all these different things. 
But I guess at the end of the day, you also included uh, this graph that just looked at Pennsylvania and how like payments changed over time. And suddenly, as you had first litigation, you saw that uh, gradual drop, and then you saw primary uh, prior authorization, and you saw the big drop. Um, and so I could see someone just looking at that graph and saying, "Well, I know you can do all this fancy stuff, but I can see right here that you know the payments are falling when this is happening. Like, why do you have to do all this fancy stuff?" Well, so part of the reason we have to do the fancy stuff is that it turns out that you know Pennsylvania East wasn't perfectly representative in a lot of ways, right? So we do see that dramatic drop at prior authorization. We do the fancy stuff, and we find out that that's true in all all the other places that re- that were subject to prior authorization. Uh, whereas the sort of large decrease in uh, ridership and payments following the litigation was less representative, right? We find that in general, this civil litigation had very little um, impact on this behavior and criminal litigation had some impact, but much less than prior authorization, for example. So that's one reason you don't just want to take one data point and say, this is, this is what's happened, you know, representative of the entire country. But the other is that lots of other things could have been changing that we just weren't aware of yet. So um, you could imagine looking at the effect of litigation and just not knowing about prior authorization, right? It's not crazy that you could be researching litigation and not know about this policy change. And so if you were doing that and you just did the pre-post comparison for Pennsylvania East, you would attribute that dramatic drop at the very end of the sample uh, to just being part of the effect of litigation because you wouldn't see it elsewhere. Um, but of course, it's prior authorization. So that's why you need to bring in sort of other states that were subject to prior authorization um, that you know, would have told you, oh, something else is going on here. Right. Uh, if you tried to use, uh, you know, for example, West Virginia as a control uh, for Pennsylvania East, looking at the effect of litigation, you would see that there was also that drop uh, at the time of prior authorization. And so you wouldn't then uh, erroneously attribute it to the effect of litigation. The setup for two way fixed effects and differences and differences can be complicated, but they give us a view into a world that couldn't otherwise be studied with an experiment. Yeah, and it's important, you know, to use observational methods for all sorts of things, because even when you can't, so there are many places where you can't, cannot run an experiment, right? Um, In some sense, CMS kind of is running an experiment with prior authorization. It didn't randomize, but it did decide we're going to do, you know, we're going to do prior authorization here and not, not these other places. But like with litigation, there's no way you could justifiably do that, right? Like, oh, I guess we'll just find some people in this district and and start prosecuting them. <laughs> and then these others, well, we think there might be bad behavior, but we'll just let them walk, right? So that right, that's just randomly choosing where to lay down the law. Exactly. You can't you can't you just can't do that, right? right? And so so it's important to be able to use these methods to get at causal inference in a world where you can't Uh, do an experiment for everything you might be interested in. One question that comes to mind after hearing about the effect of prior authorization is, what about the patients who actually need the ambulance? 
Can we tell if this effect is specific for only ambulance fraud without hurting people who actually need the service? Yeah, that's exactly right. So one real big benefit of our setting in the data that we have is that we see lots of information about the patient. So in particular, we see other health outcomes that you might not always get uh, when you're just looking at utilization, right? So uh, not only do we see whether or not this pa these patients ride in an ambulance, we also are able to see whether they're able to get to their dialysis treatments, right? Are they receiving dialysis? And how many treatments are they getting? We see that. We see uh, whether they get hospitalized, whether they get hospitalized for indications that, uh, you know, are more likely if you're missing dialysis sessions. Um, and we see whether or not the patients die. And so being able to look at the downstream health outcomes of this sort of policy is really important, especially when we are thinking of a policy that we find really restricts the use of, of these medical services by a lot. You've got to be very careful that this dramatic decrease in use was only waste or fraud or uh, that there aren't going to be bad impacts for patients. And honestly, going into the going into the project, we thought that there, you know, would be negative effects on on these patients, right? Lots of dialysis patients sort of are in situations where they are not, you know, they don't have a ton of resources. It might be difficult for them to get around. They're sort of by definition ill, um, and so we really did expect to see them missing dialysis sessions um, with potential adverse health outcomes down the line. And that's really just not what we see. So we're able to, using the same strategy, compare the health outcomes of these dialysis patients uh, and find that, you know, they, they uh, don't suffer any increase in mortality or hospitalizations or anything like that. We're also able to similarly look at the characteristics of the patients that continue to ride. So Again, uh, this service is meant for patients who are in really poor health. So what we can look at is, well, are the patients who are riding afterwards in poorer health? And it turns out they are, right? So they are more likely to you know, be hospitalized or, or die, uh, not causally, not because the, you know, they aren't the ones riding. In particular, they are the ones riding, right? So the patients that are being selected to uh, continue riding are the patients that we would expect to be the ones that need it the most, uh, which is a very good outcome for this policy. This is a great finding because we see that prior authorization in this case can be beneficial in reducing fraud without barring the patients who need ambulances from these services. Well, yeah. Riley Leek, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your work with us today. We really appreciate you being on this. Thanks. Pleasure's all mine. And that's the show. Thanks for listening to The Unbiased Estimator. The link to the paper we discussed today and other studies cited in this episode can be found at sites.duke.edu forward slash medecon. For more from Riley League, you can follow him on Twitter at Riley League. His information will also be included in the show notes. I'd love to hear what you thought about the show. You can send comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes by email at unbiased.edsc at gmail.com. That's unbiased.est at gmail.com or on Twitter at DanWangMed. Our contact information can also be found in the show notes and the website. The Unbiased Estimator is a production of the Duke Medical Economics and Decision-Making Interest Group. You can find more information about our group at sites.duke.edu forward slash medecon. This podcast was produced and written by me, Daniel Wang, and mixed by Ankit Chowdhury. 
All views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of the unbiased estimators, staff, or advisors. If you like this show, please support us by rating it on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. One disclaimer I want to give on the content of this podcast is that I'm a medical student. Emphasis on the student. All content related to health information in this podcast is for general information only. Any questions about your own health should be directed to your medical provider.